0: Imagining the Divine, Part Two. All right, you are listening to or watching PH2T3R, the Journal of Solar Culture, and we are here today with Ed Haman and CB Robertson, and we're going to talk about imagining the divine. Pick up where we left off on our last uh, podcast about that. You know, should gods have faces? Is it is it utilitarian? Is it their benefit to it? Is it is it a bad thing? It should God be abstract or uh, depicted? And uh, last time we had this conversation, I think uh, CB Robertson and I both came at it from different angles and then convinced each other, and we ended up somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so, and, and, and I think our answer was uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes both, uh, which is actually probably the right answer in most questions. Uh, you know, in, in in life and whatever, but uh, this podcast is not sponsored by Monster in any way, but it could be. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we brought in Ed today uh, because Ed is is our is our Vedic guy, our, our Vedic guy, not post Vedic. Uh, as, as he joked before the show that we're, I think we're the only people who say post Vedic, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he, he's he's our, our our font of Vedic wisdom, so. He had some uh, thoughts about the way that, you know, we, we talked a lot in the last podcast about, um, you know, the Hellenic forms and, and uh, you know, the platonic ideals and, and uh, the way that, you know, the contrast between, you know, Islam and, and some of the more, you know, things where deities are humanized. And so Ed is going to talk a little bit about the more Eastern way of looking at the, you know, from his studies in India and and looking at the Rig Veda and
1: so forth. So, Ed, start. (laughs) There's a lot. Let's see uh, Mm -hmm. where we'll go, where we end up. You know, thinking about Rig Veda, you know, as far as we know, and I've I've really tried to look into this, uh, as far as like, you know, big scholars and, little scholars like myself, um, there were no temples dur- during the the, uh, the the Vedic period, uh, and no deities, uh, no deity worship. There was um, fire, you know, and the, the forces of nature uh, that, you know, it's believed most of the, the gods, the devas, you know, sort of Uh, came out of, you know, lightning,
0: thunder. Oh, can I stop you there for a second? Just because that's that's an interesting point. Because almost every culture that I can think of built temples. Uh, And that's actually pretty interesting to have a culture that didn't didn't build temples. Because eventually they get around to it. You know, like at the level of development that these guys were obviously at, um, usually they get around to building temples. It becomes a thing. Uh, you know, like if we have a god. Where does he live? Uh, you know, we have to. That's you know. Where do we you know uh, make these observances? So that's actually an interesting point. So in all the scholarship that they've done, you're saying that they've never really uncovered like evidence of a, a Vedic temple.
1: At oh, all? No temples, and and definitely no deities. Oh, you know, and and reading that that book that both you and I have been reading recently, Vedic mythology mm-hmm. by McDonald. The first, the very, very introduction, uh, I, I I found really interesting, uh, as far as talking about forces of nature, powers of cosmic order, uh, you know, it, evolving into named gods, and then he sort of talks about how eventually you get to the point, like with the Hellenic pantheon, where you can't even really tell necessarily what force of nature, what power of cosmic order they may have sort of evolved from. But in the Rig Veda, it's a little closer to the source. It's kind of clear that you're dealing with lightning, thunder, rain, the sunrise, the sunset, the rays of the dawn, all of those things. It's pretty clear uh, where the the force of nature is. Um, So I I think that's pretty interesting. Well, another thing I've been looking into, though, in this, like they're not being temples um, and and I can only say so much about it because I'm still kind of trying to dig into it. And it's the idea of something called Indra Dvaj, Indra's flag. Uh, You think about flags and banners as symbols, super important to this very, very day. we kind of take them for granted almost like how important flags and banners are especially politically but uh indra's flag is alluded to in the rig veda and then in some of the later vedas and going forward uh, it becomes a, a bigger thing it's mentioned in ramayana mahabharata that there's this huge festival which actually takes place in modern times in nepal in bengal And in South India, there's this hoisting up of a pole that has Indra's flag at the top. Um, So I've been thinking a lot about that, like was that almost like a type of uh, a form of worship perhaps uh, symbolically, Um, because it's mentioned, um, you know, you hear in the Rig Veda, there's a couple of places where the Maruts, you know, Indra's band of, Decked out dudes, um, where it says that Indra shakes in the presence of the Maruts. And some scholars believe that that is talking about, since the Maruts are technically wind gods, wind deities, that that shaking is the fluttering of a flag. And in the first book of Rig Veda, uh, book one, hymn 10 it describes Indra being raised up high like a pole. Um, and so this this festival still takes place now.
2: So it uh, so almost sounds as if Indra is being described as the flag.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, one, one, one of the things thing thing that it, it struck me about when you were talking about uh, the flag and how important it is, uh, I mean, it, 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 <laughs> There's a lot of things that be, immediately would hit my mind was this bumper sticker or, or like you know decal on the back of a car that I saw going to the gym the other day uh, saying that like uh, if you if you feel like you need to disrespect a flag it means that you've ever been handed a folded one by some mom you know obviously like a military mom I'm like that's kind of brutal um, but, but at the same time so that's the importance of like a flag in that sense uh, it is very meaningful to somebody, but really flags, what they represent are identity, you know, and mm-hmm. ed- identity is kind of the, and so like when I'm thinking of that, what you're saying about the importance of the flag uh, of, as a symbol of Indra being raised, um, you have a group of people that are aligned around what we believe and what we care about. And that that's what flags really are. You know, like this, is, this flag represents us as a people, and in the Rig Veda, obviously, tons of times they're talking about, you know, the, the people who worship, you know, they're the pious people who worship the right gods and do it the right way. And that's that's what represent that's who they are. And so, like, the, the, it's, it makes a lot of sense that the, the flag of Indra would be this is a representation of us. You know, it's, it's Indra's flag, but he's the highest version of us. You know, like he's he's we are the people who worship Indra you know like this is identity so it makes a lot of sense um i mean we did it with our own group like you know like it's it's part of taking territory is like putting, putting your flag on the territory like we have marked this we this is this is our space now uh it's very it's very important thing so i, I like the idea of a symbol as a flag uh, that representing the god more than you know a, a temple in some way but anyway continue
1: yeah i and there's just not much information about it going that that far back. But, you know, the fact that it's mentioned that this Indra flag raising festival is in, you know, the two uh, great, you know, poetic epics of India. And then it's taking place now sort of off the beaten track in a way. It's not like across the board, super common, but it, it tells us there must, I, I just, yeah, I'm really interested to know how important it. May may have been, especially considering no temples, no no deity worship. Uh, so it's a, yeah, it's definitely something I'm curious about. And to this day, I mean, all over the world, flags and banners have a lot of meaning. Uh, but you know, in, in India in particular, like it's a, a major thing. Flags having a flag is a very symbolic thing for different sort of groups or political activities. Um, and yeah, they're definitely, and so the fact that it's a symbol, it's symbolizing the divine. Mm-hmm. You know, where we, it's often it's it's kind of very. We think of politics more often, like you know, the, the United States flag, the flag of wherever, is a mm-hmm. you know a group of symbols, colors put together to represent a bigger idea, that has a lot of meaning. Oh.
2: Well, and it changes the experience of the space that the flag is flying in. It's it's so interesting to be talking about flags today on is this August sixth? It's like two days ago. Um, one of my favorite philosophers, uh, Matthew Crawford, uh, put out an essay. It's the first part of a, th- a three-part essay talking about uh, y- you know how are we are currently politically organized and the prospects and the but, but he specifically. Detailed the difference, uh, and more importantly, the similarities between a patriotic July Fourth parade, Fourth of July parade, and a Pride parade, and both of them are sort of uh, pride and identity shows with lots of flags, very ostentatiously uh, demonstrated, and you know people one of them is legally official, but one of them is increasingly culturally official in, in a way that is sort of at odds with the other one because they're they are viewed each each one as antagonistic towards the other in in some way and you know living uh, shall we say closer to the heartland now than I did you know five years ago when I lived closer to Seattle um, you can you can sense that <laughs> the difference in hey, the wait, if that's the heartland what is seattle then no no no, no. no where i am now
0: is, is no i know life. that's what i mean if, if, yeah. that, if that's the heartland like what is seattle what is it the buttland or like what like, like, what? What part of the body does that come from,
2: well, to, to, borrow from to borrow from from irish geography uh, i would call it beyond the pale um <laughs> you know on the on the periphery on the 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 seaboard edges of the country um Right I, th- I think I think the genitals is more Florida, but I could be getting my geography wrong. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it, th- there's definitely a different flag in that space, and mm-hmm. it changes, you know, whether you feel like you are at home or you, whether you are an outsider in a given space, sort of sort of going to that identity thing. And so it, it w- it's interesting to think about flags as um, sort of claiming territory or space, uh, for a deity and does that establish a home for a deity or not does it even signify or does it um, is it a depiction of the deity itself or is there some distinction between signifying a deity and depicting a deity especially given what ed was describing as the depictions of indra in terms of a flag this is very interesting
1: okay. yeah. yeah for sure yeah so I don't even know where to go with powers of nature, but I mean that I I was thinking sometimes I think like, you know, like back in the day, like, you know, with somebody like, you know, asking their father, you know, is Indra real? You know, it's like, no, Indra. you know, like, what? you know, was the conversation like something you might hear in contemporary times, you know, no, Indra is just a symbol for the thunder and lightning and the rain comes and then there's grass and everyone is happy, you know, or is it like, yes, Indra is real? How dare you say that? You know, how dare you ask such a question. Um, I've thought about that. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes we explain things that way, you know, to others now. And in a way, it's kind of a buzzkill. It's sort of like, you know, like, do you really believe that Agni is a, you know, is a person? Yes, of course, I do. But then at the same time, maybe not, you know. and so, yeah, abstract symbols can be really powerful. The flag, the idea of the flag proves that, you know, like so, and, and we have official or, or order of fire flags as well. So you know those, those that may be the thing. There, there may be somebody that, you know looks at uh, an anthropomorphic image and is completely turned off, but then the flag, you know, they go into some sort of internal, you know thing.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I like symbols. And that's what we talked about a little bit in the last podcast is that symbols, they they combine a whole complex of ideas into into a thing, you know. And uh, and so it's it's about the ideas, not a guy, you know, like uh, that's the, the that's kind of the difference of the discussion. You know, like, is it a, is it a guy or uh, like a super guy or, or is it just an idea uh, or a cluster of ideas that have like a great amount of meaning? I mean, because uh, like our symbol, you know, I mean, it's it's. Yeah, it looks like a Vajra, but it was also meant to be the the center was supposed to be the the Axis Mundi, and then the that was supposed to be the Earth that goes across there. It's on your shirt, so I'm kind of like just looking at that. And, and then it kind of also represents fire that comes up from the ground and mm-hmm. then spread order that spreads outward. So like when I was making it, that's what I was thinking of, and then I'm like, oh, it kind of looks like a Vaj. Oh shit, it looks like Vajra too. Uh, mm-hmm. So like it it comes together and it means so it has all this. Meaning layered into it, and then you know it represents a whole set of ideas that's bigger than that. And it you know if you've been in the order or whatever, and then it you know it links to a whole bunch of essays and, and uh, thoughts, and you know so it's all I mean really a meme, uh, a memoplex or whatever in, in, the, in the Dawkins pre uh, picture with impact font on it. Uh, you know before that, you know like the actual like original definition of what memes are. Uh it's it it that's what symbols are, is they they take this mimoplex and like put it into this little fucking symbol. I had a weird I had somebody ask me ask, the other day, it was a teller at a supermarket, he's like saw my hammer and this tattoo, and he's like, is that supernatural? <laughs> <laughs> I saw you it know, on a show, <laughs> and I was like, "No, nah, I didn't really. I don't really want to get into like Icelandic <laughs> magic, technically, uh, you know, <laughs> medieval Icelandic magic." <laughs> but uh, you know, but uh, you don't want to get into that people. But anyway, uh, but yeah, it, it just yeah, the, I, I love the idea of it being a flag or just a symbol generally, uh, you know, like that, that could be raised. Uh, in honor of the gods, but then that's, that's not a guy, you know, like, you know, it's not, because it's, it's a different thing. Worshipping a guy is, is a different thing,
1: you know? It, it, it seems like a little bit of sort of someone's personal nature, mm-hmm. their proclivities, and and then also the, the, the greater culture that they're in probably, you know, has a big influence on what works um, as far as whether more abstract concepts or, more very sort of human-like concepts, like, you know, you look at post-Vedic, you look at Hinduism, you know, there's two main, there's two main sort of uh, basic schools of thought as far as like the nature of things. One is Advaita, which is non-dualism, and the other is Dvaita, which is dualism, and that's sort of like uh, the nature of the soul and, and uh, in relation to God. So the Advaita is like a more impersonal, that there is no uh, there is no duality, all is one, you could say. A lot of this all is one stuff kind of has its roots in that. And then the other side, Advaita, the dualism says that there is a inherently a, a difference mm-hmm. between God and the soul, or God, God and man—that there—and uh, and so the the, the uh, non-dualist school tends that still has deity worship, and Shiva, and Vishnu, etc. Um, but the the idea is that man uh, man needs some sort of concrete form uh, in order to conceive the in what is ultimately inconceivable. So someone might say, "Oh, the deity is is a uh, the the deity worship is a tool to for your consciousness to try to directly experience the divine, which is ultimately unknowable and has no form." But then the other side, the the dualistic school, is no God actually does have a form, and we are somehow the same and somehow different and it's inconceivable, but God has an absolute form. And and it sort of uh, is similar um, uh, to the Platonic uh, ideal that it's sort of like the, the idea of Maya, the illusion of the world, is that okay? Well, the reason there's a table is because God's perfect table exists in the spiritual world. And the table here is a perverted reflection. Same with your body, you have a body, because God has a body. You have sex desire because God has sex desire, but his is absolute and yours is a, a you know, non-ideal reflection of the real thing and so on with, with everything. And so in a way, it kind of makes the whole world becomes a divine perverted reflection of the ultimate reality. Well, that's one one of the things you were making me think
0: of. I mean, uh, does this have a relationship to the agori? Like because I mean that my understanding of the agori they're, they're kind of like an extreme version of like everything is is God and therefore like feces and like you know like nudity and like, like everything everything like death and corpses and all that stuff and he, all the all the really dark dudes love love the agory because they look scary uh you know but uh it, like it, it, are you familiar with them uh, at all
1: yeah basically yeah
2: yeah yeah <laughs> Didn't that one CNN reporter go over there and <laughs> I forget his name? Uh, there's a funny, funny story with a, a CNN reporter that got films eating human brain or, or something and and throwing up later. It's a sort of a, a funny uh episode. Did no one
0: tell him you're not supposed to eat the brain? That's the only thing you're not supposed to eat. (laughs) (laughs) Cannibals don't get in trouble when they eat the brain.
1: (laughs) But like, and so as far as like anthropomorphic worship, we heavily associate Hinduism with it. I mean, because they're, you know, most of the world, the world is unfortunately dominated by Abrahamic, you know, religious practices so India sort of is like the you know the living example of like all, all these things happening and so you've got deity worship but then two very different schools of thought around it you know that it's a tool that humans need that can be rejected if you desire or not, but then there's, the, you know, the other side of the coin is that no, like this deity is actually real. And and, and it goes beyond, you know, like I talked about the comparison to Platonic ideal, but in those, those uh, theological uh, schools of thought, the deity is actually non-different as well. So like, especially with the worship of Krishna, um, the, the deity of Krishna is considered, is non-different from the person himself. Uh, same for the, the, uh, the name as well. The, the name of Krishna is Krishna himself. Mm. That there is no, uh, no difference. Uh, which also makes you think of sound. Sound is, a, is another abstract concept that uh, we can imagine the divine with. I mean,
0: just before we get into the sound, because that's actually a totally neat uh, idea. Uh, uh, But uh, I I find it fascinating that the the way you're articulating this is basically the discussion that we've been having. So it's like uh, there are dudes sitting around in India at some point having this exact discussion of like whether or not we should depict the gods and whether or not they're they're, real. And I like the, the answer. Uh, that you were gave was that you know, it, sometimes you have to depict them because it helps engage with the human consciousness, uh, which is kind of what we were talking about in the last podcast. You know, like uh, okay, well it makes more relatable, and people imitate other people, and like they, that's that's what we do as monkeys, and uh, and so that makes perfect sense that you would have to do that. So the idea that they've come, they've already they've come to that conclusion. Well, this is why we have to do this. You know, like uh, yeah. to to make, make it relatable to humans is kind of a fascinating topic. Uh, yeah, just imagine two dudes sitting around in the dirt, like like <laughs> it's, it's discussing this. What? I know that not everybody in India sits in the dirt, but you know you, we have that association. Yeah,
1: th- <laughs> theological and philosophical debate is like you know it's been it's like the an Indian sport for millennia. You know, A lot of famous figures in religious history there got their status because they debated somebody and defeated them, you know, based on deeper understanding of Sanskrit grammar or, or, you know, bringing out a certain meaning, uh, you know, in a passage from one of the scriptures, um, you know, that defeats the other person. But then, yeah, so there's a theological argument. Is it real or is it not? You know, like, is God a person or is God not a person?
2: Well, to put India on even ground um, for a moment, I, I have sat in the dirt in South Central Washington and had these sorts of conversations around,
1: <laughs> around <laughs> the, fire and
2: the dirt in the wilderness too. Um, it, but the, this conversation about, you know, is it just utilitarian or not, brings to mind all these stories, I think in both the East and the West, of gods that come down either as avatars or in the form of a human being, like Athena taking the form of mentor. And if an artist depicts the manifestation, perhaps Zeus as a swan or, or, or something, um, is that a depiction of the God or, uh, or or is it just this utilitarian thing? It seems like d- d- when the gods take many forms, which most gods are believed to be able to do, um, you know, the, the any depiction of a form is a de facto depiction of the god. It's just we understand from the context that it's a manifestation that any given depiction is going to be insufficient. Right.
0: It's like an aspect. It's like a costume that the god put on. Right. The god itself could be inconceivable. Or maybe but a it, mask. the god put on a costume. You know, to, to, to take up and yeah, a mask. Yeah. Interesting.
2: <laughs> There seems relevant. Aren't there aren't there some places where um, people are believed to literally take on the form of a god when they put on a particular mask Um, in like certain initiation ceremonies and in in other rituals where, um, you know, putting on the mask the the god is believed to, in some sense, um, reside in the mask or in the role that the wear of the mask takes on in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean uh, it, it, speaking of
0: initiation things, which
2: is the you know, first thing
0: you said, I mean, obviously, that's the convention in initiation processes is that, uh, you know, people, you know, young men usually, uh, you know, cover themselves with ash or blackness or be, take on spooky uh, masks or whatever, and they usually represent the ancestors. Uh, like the ancestors, then speak through them, and they become part of the ancestors, and they, they're no longer themselves. You know, it's part it's part of the because part of the initiation process is that this dissociation, where you're no longer who you were, and you're kind of no one, and that's what they that's what the liminal space is. You're in this threshold space between one thing and another, so you're nobody. And when you're nobody, you're like the ancestors that you, you, yeah. So there's that. And, but I'm, I'm absolutely certain that I, I can't come up with a concrete example, but yeah, there are a lot of things where you, God speaks through the person once they put the mask on, you know, like depending on what culture it is or whatever, uh, they're, they are believed to be a representation of like God, like the God is in them you know, in in the way that Christians say, like, God is in me or whatever, you know, like, uh, I got Jesus in me. Uh, But uh, it's, they are representing that form, uh, when when they're, and and people regard them that way, I believe, you know, like, this depends, you know, how literal that is, or not, you know, like, in any given case, would have to be, you know, dependent on the society, and probably what level of development they're at, and what, you know, whatever, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely it's definitely a thing and and I like I love that you know that's some of the most interesting art and is these different ritual costumes that people put on and put a lot of work into to like uh I mean, I'm thinking of and these are the ones that everybody likes is like the Krampus things in my mind, like where you you become like a demon or whatever or you like a you know, all that German stuff uh, where you, you know, there's a whole bunch of those kind of costumes uh where you dress up as something like that that's kind of like to scare kids. Uh but uh then there's you know other things you know as well. I mean speaking of germanic stuff uh uh you know is is uh, when you're 5 years old that guy at the mall is santa. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah you know, like that guy he t- puts on the face of santa and then becomes santa. Uh, Eddie actually is a little, literally Santa for these kids. And now the parents know that that's not literally Santa because they're all buying all the gifts, but like the the uh, you know the, to the kids that is literally Santa.
2: Yeah. Well, it asks the begs the question: What is the the platonic true Santa? You know, is it? <laughs> Is it the story of St. Nick? Is it the literal person he's based on? Is it the ideal he embodies? Like what, who's the real Santa? Interesting.
0: Yeah. Uh, Who is the real Santa? Uh, You know, because it, you know, it depends what time and history too. I mean, like what does Santa really represent? You know, in America, there's this very Norman Rockwell kind of version of Santa that goes with Coca-Cola and like the art and like exactly what Santa is, and you know he represents giving toys to children. And 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 you know, like in my era, and my and Ed's era, you know, you had the uh, those stop-motion animation of things of Santa and they were really santa you know like that was really what it represented you had the stop motion the classic like stop motion cartoons where they go the island of misfit toys and uh you know that that's what santa is is this jolly guy who's like is trying to do nice things and yeah, and, and to help people so uh it's yeah. you know that becomes what santa is i mean to me that's that's what santa is as the child
2: well i i go back to the the conversation i had with with Dr. Greg Naj, um, who delineated the distinction between, you know, stories in the monotheistic sense, stories we believe in, versus in the 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 more sort of pagan sense of uh, myth, which are like stories we live by. And the the literal historical truth is 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 like a is like a genre error. It's a it's a category error. It's not that's not the thing we're doing when you go through the, Christ, the ritual of Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a story that is not about um, literal truth. It is about um, sort of participatory idealism. It's like, who do we want to become by um, not just telling the story, but acting it out and enacting it out, embodying it. And it, it seems as if historically there are gods that are derived from either nature or sort of union aspects of our own psychology um, or both that are, you know, the foundations, but which then uh, have these stories added to them. And, and the literal truth is like a, you know, saying oh that's not true it's like a it's like a projection from a completely different frame of legitimacy onto onto this it's like that's not what this is about at all when you see mummers doing you know weird dances and and plays in you know 16th century britain or or something or you see shinto shrines set up to particular creek waterfalls or bits of wood in the in, in japan like it's it's a it's a participatory relationship with an idea, um, uh, and, and with a with a personality um, that is experienced, and it's it, whether or not there's a literal physical person is is beside the point because the stories are told in order to make sense out of it.
0: Well, that's like the, the, uh, the old saying. I don't know if it's old saying. No, I don't know who I got it from, but uh, the idea that uh... And myths are just history told better. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, like the, where it's a different. It, 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 this is the better tale, and really, there's when you really dig into what actual history is and what it, what we know about uh, so much of the ancient world. Uh, there's really a big overlap in what, you know, like, yeah. in, in what was propaganda. I was, I was when, when, what was what was propaganda what was true what actually happened I mean like how much how many records do we do we really know that that happened
2: you know I, I like, was talking with a friend yesterday who who after deep diving into uh, one aspect of history about 200 years ago was wow. like uh he's like history is basically just liars lying about liars um, <laughs> It's like, so wait, it's it's a myth. (laughs) No, it's not even a myth because it's it's not even that sacred. It's uh, well, it can become sacred, and that that's when it gets really bad. Um, But it's it's not even sacred. Um, Whereas the the myths of the more religious kind, it's like, no, we're we're we're, at least in the what we can loosely call the pagan or heathen or, or Hindu or Shinto world seem to be like, that we're, we're not even going to pretend to go after this overrated idea of historical truth. We're gonna go straight to the heart of the matter, which is what is the real personality and essence of the things that we care about? And let's tell stories that, that embody those things. Um, Absolutely. I
0: mean, it made me think of, as we were talking about myth-making, I mean, and, and liars telling lies about lies, not to be vulgar, but, uh, you know, what they're doing now with, like, January 6th is a big example of creating truth. Like, oh, yeah. they're, they're, like they're actually creating a truth, and truth. they're working really hard. And if you don't, it, like, you have to agree with the truth. Mm-hmm. It, it, like, we're we're fighting to establish what that truth is, and it's all a myth. It's not a myth, because, like I said, that's not even a good story. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's it just, yeah. it's but it's a, it is a sacred representation of reality, you know, like yeah. to a lot and of people.
2: And it changes every other week. Like um, just two or three weeks ago, MSNBC and CNN were purportedly reporting on January sixth as a rowdy protest. They completely changed the, like they're doing an about face because things are different now in terms of what's beneficial to whom and so forth. And and like you said before, this has probably always been true. There's a um, there's a book uh, called the Machiavellians by James Burnham that describes, uh, Dante author of the inferno. He wrote another book called De Republica, um, which is ostensibly a, you know, theological book on political theory and how the ideal state should be, um, structured and taken at face value. It makes no sense. It is absolutely nonsense. Uh, but understood within the context of a very niche, like battle within Italy for control of some city-state. Um, like it was, it was, and one side was like allied with the Pope, while the other side was kind of not. And it, it was, it was just propaganda. It was just propaganda. Um, and Burnham exposed that beautifully, and and I think inarguably. And yet, it's being presented as a, uh, a, you know, a text of political theory. And I think more, perhaps more relevantly to the gods, our friend Clinton uh, has been, you know, deep diving into how was how was it exactly that Odin became the head of head of the, the, you know, gods. Well, it turns out Odin is believed to be the, uh, you know, the progen the the father of many of the kings. So Thor and Odin sort of get elevated by Snorri in some of the Eddas, and um, you see something similar with uh, Shakespeare and yeah. uh, Macbeth, who was actually a good king, and Macduff was kind of mad. But we can make Macbeth look bad for political reasons. <laughs> and yeah. now it's and now it's Shakespeare. Now it's now it's canon. Yeah. Well,
0: I mean, the, what you said, uh, you know, obviously. I was thinking the exact same thing as far as uh, the whole idea with Odin and Snorri. Uh, as, you, as you were get, as you were getting there, I was like, yeah, yeah. So I was going to interrupt you and talk about that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, exactly. And and then take it one step further, and then you have these romantic romantic movements that happened in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century that were trying to find, you know, state, you know, like state you know like this is the germanic religion or we're like they, they were trying to create a mythology uh that was for the this the state that really didn't even exist at that time and uh but to unite people and then it became a romantic thing there was all this art created, and then the material from that period then is that like Schiller. Uh maybe there was a lot going it on there H- was a Hable, lot of- for sure yeah, there were there were a lot of people going. There was there was a lot going on. I mean, it was a whole it was a whole art movement, really. You know, like uh, in different countries. I mean, I believe, and I don't want to say something in error here, but I believe that they the Caravala, uh, because they I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but there's there's one that they made up for Finland, I believe, because they needed one. Like <laughs> like uh, I don't know if that like how you know, like ancient that actually is. I might be wrong about that. So like, you know, whatever, but uh, there there are a lot, everybody was looking for a national, like, this is our roots thing. And that'd be romanticizing the state in in a way like this is our roots. And that obviously we know which direction that went in with one particular state. uh, But, (laughs) you know, that was the, that was happening everywhere at, at a certain point. Like what is our mythology, founding mythology that like comes before us? And that's probably really a reaction to the death of God uh is that we need a founding mythology for the state to, to legitimize it uh but that's kind of a, a sidebar uh anyway uh but yeah it's yeah just but i was where i was going with that was taking a step further is then you have people taking the material from that era and now you know like the neo-pagans and stuff actually having a literal belief in or whatever of these things that came from Propaganda one and propaganda two, like the second time, recycle propaganda. But they're having this like religious experience with this propaganda, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, you know, not you know, not wrong, yeah. whatever. But uh, it, it's a it is interesting to see that kind of thing. But I do want to take it back to obviously because Ed threw out a really interesting concept, which was the idea of um, sound. And how and how sound yes. represents uh gods i mean and that's you know when i think of it in the western sense um i'm thinking of all of the symphonies that were written for churches to play on big organs which are the best ones really <laughs> in my my in my totally unbiased opinion if you, if you don't have an organ in your symphony, fuck off. Uh, but <laughs> like, <laughs> there's something about a pipe organ that brings it home. But uh, you know, and but most of those are just big uh, symphonies for God. Uh, like they're yeah. trying to represent God in sound. And we have certain things that become synonymous with higher ideals. Uh, you know, I get misty when I hear the because from Man of Steel, the soundtrack. I'm like, because that represents that represents everything to me. <laughs> so, like, uh, mm-hmm. I, I played it on the keyboard one time. I was like, oh shit, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's God sound. Uh, but, uh, but Ed, where were you going with that? As far as like the, the way that it sounds it represent ideas mm-hmm. in, in the East.
1: Well. You know, just a, a, as another example of a sort of not anthropomorphic, you know, abstract idea that's really powerful. You know, uh, and it doesn't just take place in in Hinduism or, or or Buddhism, but you know, you've got Om. You know, Om is uh, it's it's written when it's written out, it's very symbolic and sort of stands stands on its own and has a lot of meaning for a lot of people. But then the sound itself you know is considered a uh you know a, a sort of a manifestation of the divine mm. you know that that the sound itself is uh the divine isn't that the, the beginning and the end like isn't it, that... well, it, it it comes up it's used at the beginning uh and at the end of a lot of different mantras or at the beginning of Versus, you know, when, but what portions of the Rig Veda that are taken out and used as sort of mantras, hymns used as mantras will often then start out with Om at the beginning, uh, even though that's not in Rig Veda because it came about a little bit later. But, you know, and then, you know, in, in, the, in Rig Veda itself, you know, the, the chanting of the hymns, Along with the fire sacrifice, uh, was super, super important. Um, and, and the correct pronunciation and the correct meter, we know, was very, very important. And that doing it wrong was almost like doing a magic spell wrong and could bring harm to uh, a person uh, reciting the Vedic the hymns. And so, yeah, sound.
2: It's funny, there, there is a, uh, we had mentioned Plato before um, and there's a lot to say on, on Plato and, and forms and stuff, but pertaining to sound, there's a dialogue called Cratylus where um, it begins, it's this very amusing dialogue where a, a um, rhetorician is accusing someone else of having the incorrect name. Like he's saying, your name is wrong. You, you don't have the correct name. Just kind of, a, kind of a baffling allegation, but it, <laughs> it, it like yeah, it, it, it's it's amusing and it, it leads to this long conversation that uh, sort of concludes with the the meanings not just of names uh, or of given words, but of the sounds themselves. What is the meaning of that, uh, like an S sound or, or or this particular consonant, and and how there are different connotations. To different sounds, and from an understanding of these sounds, you can construct the correct name of a thing, perhaps. Um, sort of on the on the converse side of that, there's someone like Joseph de Maistre, a famous French philosopher, uh, like the good kind of French philosopher, though. Those the, the, the one French philosopher holding back the floodgates or trying to against all the other crappy French <laughs> philosophers, but um, who said that it is is impossible for a human to give a positive or commendable name to a thing. All he can do is give a name to it, and if the thing is good, that name will acquire a positive connotation over time, or negative one, perhaps. And so there's like a, a sort of Shakespearean, uh, would a rose by any other name, smell as sweet sort of question going on between these these. The view presented in Cratylus versus the view presented by De Maestra in the in, in the power that names have. So I think everyone agrees that names are powerful, but but not necessarily in the in the way that they are powerful. Yeah, I mean,
0: I mean, obviously there's there's names that just sound wrong, and they, obviously it's very cultural. One of the things that things that comes up, I think, uh, in our group a lot because we have Australians, is that uh, in Australian, uh, it's putting an E on the end of something is not gross and infantilizing the way it is in America. Like, uh, you put E, it's like, oh, are we speaking baby talk now? Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, 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 that's 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 snuggly. Like, <laughs> that, that, you know, but uh, in, in their culture, like that's, you know, totally normal and not, not uh, it doesn't have the same connotation at all. But to my ear, whenever I hear it, I'm like, like when he says hot chalky, when Josh says hot chalky, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, like whoa, it. oh God. Well, like, that's that's terrible, <laughs> you know yeah. that 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 that's what you call it when you give it to a child in America, <laughs> like you're some chat chucky, you know, and really you shouldn't even talk to your kids that way, probably, <laughs> no. you know, but uh, but but yeah, in in uh, yeah in Australia that's not a thing at all. So I mean, uh, but
2: the, the yeah, Barbie is cultural the word.
0: The sound, you know, uh, at the end of a word, and also like uh, the way that certain to think how it would be formulated but when like an ah sound like in a word sometimes becomes feminine it may like at the end like in names like there's certain things that you wouldn't give a name to a guy because it sounds like feminine in it and i'm trying to think what the example is but i know i've thought about it before
2: so in my family history if you go back about six or seven generations on my father's mother's side there are sets of cousins the males are william and the females are williamina
0: yes yeah 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 like like that i mean like it this is the way i mean like uh you know like uh the way that uh, in spanish you make a diminutive of of something by in a certain way uh what's it uh this is an e at the end of thing you know what i'm talking about ed ito yeah yeah like you make or something it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something, yeah, It yeah, makes something cute
1: <laughs> in a way. But you have the choice of masculine or feminine, at least. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, ito, ita. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, but we I mean, sound. Yeah, back to sound like, you know, and, and you know, with the whole thing with Ohm, you know, there's the idea that the universe was, you know, called into creation by an utterance, by a sound vibration. It's kind of the Bible too, you know, the, in the beginning. Um, and so people react to sound. So certain people, uh, it, it sound is like a really deeply spiritual thing that sort of gives them that space, you know, or creates that space for them. Like when we've talked about meditation, some people, I can't sit silently. I can't sit and just watch my thoughts run wild, but if sound is involved, you know, I'm that way. Like I do a little bit better with sort of, uh, you know, a a, a mantra sort of situation. Like I I can sit and say, you know, I am the Vajra in Sanskrit and sit there with it. But if it's just silence, it's a, a little more difficult to sit still. So sound definitely, uh, invokes the divine for a a lot of people. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a fascinating language. I mean,
0: uh, music, uh, in the way that, you know, like a certain chord has a certain feeling, like it has a human feeling to it. And that doesn't make any sense at all. (laughs) Like why that would be, but, that certain tone has a like, you know, that's w- the way songs can manipulate our emotions and the way, you know, like just music alone can make us feel a certain way, Yeah, uh, you know, which is it's fascinating that that's yeah. it, like I'm sure there's been deep, deep evolutionary discussions on that with someone. I haven't read them, but uh, you know, like why that would be or, or you know, what how, the way that sound influences us and so, so forth. So, another, yeah, there,
1: there's a. Other abstract, um, I mean, I guess sound is abstract when it comes to imagining the, the divine. The, you know, there's there's other, other things uh, that you see in, in Hinduism also that are forms, but more abstract. You know, you have uh, certain kinds of rocks, the linga, the shiva lingam, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is uh, basically a stone phallic, symbol that is placed into a what's called yoni which yeah. is uh sort of feminine in its and it's very it's really, sexual looking thing it's, it's designed to catch liquids mm-hmm. you know which are then captured to be distributed to worshipers but the you know the lingam you know it does one of its meanings is you know phallus but it mm-hmm. Its core meaning is sign, symbol, mark, or a word that is meant to point to the meaning of another word. And so, you know, there's this stone phallic symbol that is treated as a deity, you know, and it sort of represents the powers of creation, the sort of um, creative potency. And then the yoni being there is a combination of masculine and feminine combined together to you know create. They're
0: um, so saying it, so it means a word that it, it, a word that points. It's, when you said the last meaning of it,
1: yeah, uh, that, that, that's one of the one of the uh, sort of definitions you find in the better Sanskrit dictionaries. You know, you get sign, symbol, mark, and then. Uh, a word a word used to point to the meaning of another word and also synonymous with creation yeah yeah which is abstract in itself that that idea yeah like it's pointing yeah. In, in a certain direction so, in you scene. know
0: in the way that naming is differentiation differentiation is creation
1: yeah exactly yeah and, and so you've got something that is a deity used in worship that is very abstract in its concept, but is associated with a deity that has, you know, with Shiva, Mm -hmm. deity that has a name, and and also an image, a common image of of his own. You know, and and then you've also got what are called Shila, or Shalagram Shila, and they're these uh, little rocks that are found in a certain place in the Himalayas, and then in another place, in Vrindavan, which uh, on the podcast with Bronson, you know, he spent a decent amount of time there. Um, but they're little rocks that are considered to be self-manifesting and they you know, people are able to pick out which one is is the right one. Uh, and they are decor, you know, they are dressed up, these little rocks, eyes drawn on them. Very common for worship of Krishna. Eyes drawn on them. Uh, it sounds really irreverent, like, yeah, it, I feel bad saying it, but almost like a little Mr. Potato Head sort of situation, you know, like a face is drawn on, a little hat is put on it, will often be given a sparkly little flute. Uh, and it, and then, uh, you know, this is now a, a manifestation of, of Krishna himself to be treated as such. Uh, and, you know, there's certain types of worship uh, and things surrounding that. Um, so it's just yeah it's anthropomorphic, but it's also not.' it's, it's very abstract. So it, and, I, and I think about you know so we have it, you know it's sort of like India is a place where the divine is sort of like considered to be manifesting everywhere all, all around you. you know God God is in, in everything. You know, there, there's, you know, you see that in the greater sort of pa- pagan world, you know, uh, and not in the Christian way of like God is everywhere, where it really means God is watching you and you better behave because you're gonna get burned up, you know. <laughs> that, it, it, but you know, so so it's like you know, God, God manifests in in a bird in this situation or in this rock, um, you know, in the food that's been offered. So. Uh, Which makes me think of the part one of the podcast talking about, you know, that sort of uh, talking about the difference between the sort of Abrahamic concept and then the uh, Hellenic idea that people with deities, with anthropomorphic deities, tend to be more life lovers uh, and more embracing living where and then the other side sort of despisers of the body. And so you have sort of, in India, you have both things happening. You have God manifesting everywhere, all different kinds of deity worship, anthropomorphic concepts. Um, But then tons of festivals, tons of embrace of of life along with that, like you would expect. But then not really a despising the body, but a very strong tradition based around controlling the senses.
2: Well, and... Sort of to, to go off of the, the first podcast and in the, in the Greek world, too, there are, there are certainly ways in which the gods are depicted and anthropomorphized as people. But there's also, and I've been diving into this in particular in the last week and a half, two weeks, ways in which the gods are depicted by association. So, um, you know, there are a, a number of boar myths kind of all around the world. Um, and in Greece, there's an interesting Welsh one that involves King Arthur, but in, in Greece is the big one, sort of the Iliad before the Iliad in many ways was the Caledonian boar hunt. And it's interesting because all of these, all of these characters mentioned in the Iliad were there at the Caledonian boar hunt, like Nestor, uh, who was an old man in the Iliad was actually a, a hunter, uh, in, um, the caledonian boar hunt and like odysseus's father laertes was there achilles father peleus was there um it's like it's like this weird overlap of characters and like jason was there as was theseus um but what happened there was um much as in gilgamesh you know this mortal king uh rejects this goddess Ishtar. So Ishtar sends the bull of heaven down. Um, some mortal king doesn't respect Artemis in the right way. And so Artemis sends down this giant Caledonian boar to, you know, ravage the countryside essentially. And, um, you know, the boar becomes in, in some ways, therefore associated with the god. And so a depiction of a boar can be thought of as a depiction of Artemis just as a depiction of a bow might be or might we might say a depiction of an eagle in some sense symbolizes Zeus um, a bow could also be for Apollo, who knows um, and and there's all kinds of interesting associations one one hero of sorts who's also associated with boars is uh, strangely Adonis, the lover of Aphrodite and also Persephone um, and he's killed by a boar and so there's this there's this very interesting, association of opposites where uh, gods and also heroes become known by association with uh, either items or animals that they uh, work with or even fight against, you know, the, the Hydra brings forth to mind Hercules in some sense. Um, And in terms of depicting or signifying gods, I wonder if there's some similarity there in, in India and elsewhere in the world, because it seems to be at least in part how language works: is um, we have this sound that is associated with the thing, and it brings to mind other things.
1: Well, thinking of the animals, actually, what you were just saying—you know, one of the um, going straight to that—you know, one of the avatars of Vishnu, several of them are animals. One of them is a boar, in particular. Um, and uh, he had dragged, you know, because like the animals often probably, even in the Greek sense, probably have a a meaning to some other big sort of cosmic thing. Um, yeah, the boar incarnation dra- had dragged the earth to the bottom of the sea. But uh, mm. is the, is the, uh, the uh, not the boar, sorry, a demon. A demon um, had dragged the earth to the bottom of the sea. And so Vishnu incarnates as a boar to save the day. There's always a specific, uh, with the avatar concept, there's always a specific reason of like dealing with miscreants uh, or, you know, reestablishing religious uh, behaviors and and dealing with demons. Uh, Like there's always a specific reason why. But yeah, boar. So that's, you know, and then another one is a fish. so yeah that's um what were you asking about sound language before I had to go to the board?
2: Oh um god I can't remember. I was <laughs> I've been kind of all over the place. I was just thinking about in the broader con in the at the broader level of the of the conversation about um you know depicting depicting the gods more broadly if we if there is a perhaps there's a time a correct way to depict the gods anthropomorphically but perhaps there's times where it's not and there are ways we can signify gods or other spirits um i think when it comes to sound an interesting one that came to mind was the tritone or what's sometimes called the devil's chord um which is very known to a lot of music there so you can Anyone listening to this can look it up and, and listen to Devil's Chord. You, you'll recognize it immediately. It's in every like 60s uh, you know, movie where the bad guy enters the show and it's this very discordant note that just instantly brings to mind feelings of, of um, like, oh, this is, this is a bad guy. This is a dark guy. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's in the sound itself. And there are, there are other chords that have the opposite effect. Um, which could also signify certain uh, certain deities or spirits or, or so forth. But um, I, was, I was just thinking about how if we can't anthropomorphize deities or ideals in certain contexts, how else might we depict or describe them? And through signifying symbols um, or animal manifestations, like the meaning of the boar is sometimes, but not always, Artemis, or the meaning of an eagle is sometimes, but not always, Zeus. If Zeus is taking the form of a swan, you know, maidens run for cover. Uh, if he's, <laughs> you know, if he's an There's eagle. taking any form. <laughs> maidens run for a, cover. Or rain cloudy or whatever. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the, these different depictions seem to um, seem to have utility, but perhaps are limited in the same way as anthropomorphic forms. But but maybe in different ways.
1: Yeah, I mean we have uh, I think both. Like like really, I mean, I really think it depends on uh, the individual. Yeah. Like what they're what they're drawn to. Well and um, then the context
2: too, right? Because it would be much easier yeah. if, if we were supposed suppose we were all in a Zeus cult, hypothetically um it would be do tease <laughs> <laughs> it would be a lot harder to put like a statuesque anthropomorphic figure on a flag to go back to flags yeah. than it would be to put a simple eagle it's like oh yeah that that eagle is zeus this is that easy done day we have our flag and right. it's good to go um if you yeah. were to make this giant temple with you know a you know 10 times life-size throne in the middle hypothetically um putting an eagle on that would be a, a, you know cool but maybe also a little um underwhelming you know yeah. compared to a gigantic bronze or you know s- marble statue of a of a human like but gigantic man holding a thunderbolt or a vajra or something
0: yeah or or abraham lincoln with a fashis or that <laughs> <laughs> huge and imposing and like a chair yeah. like overlooking everyone
2: yeah <laughs> nah, surrounded by columns no relationship yeah. Sure.
1: yeah yeah exactly exactly <laughs> i mean that, it makes per- perfect sense like if you're going to build a temple just go all the way and have you know the the full form yeah but then you know on a flag yeah it makes no sense and the the, the indra's flag that is takes that is used in those modern uh, the the festival that still takes place, you know, it has a vajra on it.
0: Okay, I I was just gonna ask that. I was like, well, wait, I, I skipped that whole part. Like,
1: what is the symbol? <laughs> yeah, it's the vajra, and okay, there, cool. there's no, and there's still. I mean, you don't see like Indra temples. I mean, in right. really in places that practice like some really old form, you know, Bali, you know, has they're into Indra there. Maybe in Nepal some, but not in India. Like in there's no Indra.
0: Yeah, well, that's where you get all the vajra with the open tines. Uh, they mm. all come from Indonesia or like yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 somewhere like that. Uh, that's that's where they do that. Everywhere else, it's the Buddhist stuff where it's closed. Uh, but to get the good the good ones that are open and can be used as weapons, uh, <laughs> that, that you need to go to, to Indonesia or whatever.
1: But, but yeah, it's like there's parts you know, like things that represent part of the concept of a god. Or you know, like the way you know, on my altar here, I have barley. You know that that uh, and it's uh, it has a form, and uh, you know, I I project a sort of divinity onto it. But it's like a certain you know natural aspect of of what the gods do, powers of nature. You know, a a symbol of the cycle of cosmic order. So
2: then not to sound too utilitarian, but one could almost say from that, um, that myths tie together a collection of otherwise, unlike symbols and appearances and ideas into coherent personalities such that an artist could understand how to, in different contexts correctly depict, um, the same God in a in a manner congruent to their context over time, so we can have a cohesive notion of Zeus that is an eagle on this flag, or a person on in this temple, or you know a, a wreath uh, at this festival, and um, and all you know have some have some congruency in in our lives and continuity of of characters. Um, would, that be, would that be one way to take this and an, to answer oh, the question, sorry. how do we depict the gods or refer to them?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, like uh, it made me think of the Greek stuff uh, just in terms of, um, you know, when I was reading, I, forget, I, I think it's the Iliad, where they talk about uh, uh, the wreath of Apollo. Yes, it was and book I'm like, one. What a fantastic thing, like artistic subject. I want to know what that looks like. You know, yes. you know like, uh, but that the wreath of Apollo was there, and then you knew that you know something related to Apollo was happening. Yeah, and, and that's a simple way that that can make that happen. And the same thing as a flag, and the same thing. Really, I was thinking as you were saying that about the you know the epithets and uh, the repeated uh, poetic lines that go with certain gods, like the way that they're always described, and like, oh, we we know that this is happening because you know. Uh, I forget what the one for uh, Athena is, but the, it's, there's, you know. there's
2: like gray eyed. Athena is one of the more yeah. common ones. And, and she's got a few others. Uh, yeah, she yeah. holds the aegis of yeah. Zeus. Um, or uh, then,
0: Depending on the translation, Zeus who loves the lightning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that that was is, my favorite. This is great.
2: This yeah. is great. And, that, and then there's a, a fun one with Dionysus who has this, mm-hmm. this wand and I forget what it's called. But it's uh, this. H uh, Y something. It's a weird name, but it has it's a got pine a pine cone on it. It's a fennel stalk with a pine cone yes. and it's got either a ribbon or like ivy wrapped around it. I made one. Okay. Yes. Yeah, we um, made one.
0: At, we made one when you were at, at Volga, uh, yeah, like because uh, we associated with uh, the fertility god, obviously. It,
2: and it's, uh, y- yes. Uh, <laughs> and it's it's associated with a lot of things, but it's yeah. um, it's in some ways almost a, it signifies Dionysus. It it, it is not necessarily Dionysus himself, but it, it sort of summons him or brings him to mind. Um, as the wreath does with Apollo and, and, um, I, I I forget the, all the different, um, objects associated with all the gods. They probably have multiple ones for, for single gods, but the, the ever burning torch of Rome was, uh, and it's an object but it's associated with the the Vesta cult yeah. like, like they they nominally adopted the greek pantheon but Vesta was actually the chief goddess the, like the, the the core of Roman myth and the the vestal fire was that god and it signified all the hearth gods which is like the ancestors basically and watching over that.
1: Didn't the um, Romans, speaking of, didn't the, the Romans have a sort of concept of choose your own deity?
2: The Romans were very uh, tricky and very uh, politically fast and loose with their pantheon. They're very happy to bring other people's gods into their pantheon because that's how they controlled them, um, and they would they would very quickly uh, pay lip service to and adopt and even pay homage to other deities and bring them in uh so long as the uh taken over nation took on their deities as well mm. uh and the sort of give and take yeah, but they, they
0: do one they wouldn't do to one to one comparisons like when we're always talking about uh, oh yeah
1: hermes is odin yeah hermes yeah exactly odin. oh clearly you know like we really yeah. we,
0: we did that we talked about that when we were uh, we had our meeting last week about uh, uh you yeah, the tong uh you know yeah. like when they went when they Encountered the Romans and encountered uh, the Celts and so forth. They're like, oh well, that that God is clearly, uh, you know, Hermes or that, that something else. You
2: know? Funny, you hear Christians sometimes do stuff like that as well. Um, well, one hundred percent. But like, uh,
0: well, anything in the sky is well—that's our God. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> you know? like well, oh, you're talking. You just don't know yet.
2: <laughs> but but Vesta was like the heart and soul of their of their yes. religious tradition, which is which is really just ancestor worship. Um, yeah,
0: and, and, and uh, for members of the Order of Fire who are listening, um, I didn't get to read it yet because I've been busy this week, but I believe that Johnny uh, Manas actually posted something because when I had my meeting with him, um, he talked about a book that he had just read about the Roman family and how the fire in the center of the home was like really important. You had to keep the fire going. And I was exactly. like, wow. We, I was like, can you post about that and bring that up because – especially the to men who have families and w- who are looking for like some kind of powerful symbol or like some, it, I, I, there's a lot of utility there in adopting something like that. Uh, you know, especially as the order of fire and like, I'm like, there's something there that could really be expanded on into something bigger. Uh, yes. and he, he, he had read a book, it was a really short book that he had recommended that was really just about the Roman hearth fire and, and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah. it was, it was, uh, I'd check, he posted about it. I'd I'd, recommend to anybody who's in the Order of Fire to go on our network and and look at that and see what book he recommended. And eventually I'll come up with something uh, to to put out. Maybe i will have him on and we'll talk about that. But uh, I think to kind of wrap up, because we're getting, we're past an hour here. But uh, um, I think the main point of all this is in terms of our bigger project of what we're doing. Um, In discussing, you know, like, is it good to depict the gods or is it not good to depict the gods? Is it, you know, should it be abstract or, or, you know, personified? Uh, Is that uh, kind of the main idea of solar idealism, idealism and where we are and what we're trying to accomplish is directed really by intentionality. Like, and... Okay, we have all of these examples from history, and people are always looking for, like, if you look at Christians, they're looking back at scripture and like, this is how it must be, and or or you're even going to like even evolutionary theory, like this is how it must be because this is how it's always been, you know, like people are always looking for this. This is how it must be. And there is some of that in because we are humans and we have the same bodies as our ancestors and repeating patterns and th- certain things work and some certain things don't. But based on that knowledge and based on our, all of our knowledge of history, what do we want? Uh, you know, to, to take all this and, and take all these examples that we've looked at and like, well, what do we think is best? Not because it must be, but because we've decided that it, we believe that it's best. Yeah, like that's because somebody has done that with every single one of these religions at some point. Like you know, the guys in India uh, sitting around uh, discussing, uh, you know, these concepts, or the Greeks doing the same thing, or uh, you in, in uh, Washington, uh, all all the dirt. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but you know, to take all these ideas and put them together and say, well, what do we want? I think I think it takes a lot more courage than like looking for the past. Me like, what are we supposed to do? Because that's what a lot of people are looking for in the world. It's like, what what are we supposed to do? Uh, rather, I think it's a little bit more courageous to to jump out and see like, well, I'm taking responsibility for this. What do we want to do?
2: Making uh, a judgment
0: call, so yeah. to speak. Exactly. And we like judgment calls in the order of <laughs> well, because
2: Because it sort of ties us back to the whole history thing we were talking about before, liars lying about lies. It's so much of the appeal to, no, this is not, not what you want to do. It's what you should do, is uh, hiding uh, the judgment call. It, it's still a judgment call. There's no way to get to a truly unbiased history. Um, so do you, do you hide the judgment or do you take on uh, the responsibility of that judgment in a more or less public way.
0: Well, yeah, but, and that's what I think of the attraction to uh, religion is for a lot of guys uh, is that they want to. I always like you know that that saying like oh do you have a mouse in your pocket if you're talking speaking we you know, <laughs> like uh, you got a mouse in your pocket uh, you know like uh, do you got do you have God in your pocket uh, like uh, is, is God is God saying that or are you saying that. You know, because a lot of guys want to say some hard line things, but it's much easier to do if they have God standing behind them to say it. like, oh, well, well, that you're a sinner. Not like I don't like what you're doing. <laughs> I don't like what you're doing is personal. Like God doesn't like what you're doing is impersonal. <laughs> you know, and it resolves resol- <laughs> your responsibility for making a judgment. Yes. Uh, yes. You know. So I think that that's an important concept to remember and, and and think about. and I should probably put that as some of the, as its own thing, uh, standalone
2: at some point because that's important. But, and if we're if we're symbolizing deities, I like the idea of of uh, the, the the symbolic representation of someone trying to speak for a god as someone with a mouse in their pocket that's something <laughs> godly, very, very nice about that
0: yeah, yeah, you got, got a little mini god in your pocket <laughs> it's a little god figurine in your pocket that's like, like, mm-hmm. like a like a, yeah, like a tonka truck or like a, like a little, <laughs> little uh, not tonka truck but like you know, like a he-man it's like a he-man <laughs> <laughs> God, you so, know that i'm old but like that <laughs> like i'm deaf. he-man yeah he-man no. uh, but, uh that's funny but, uh, but cool girl cool. uh, any 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 final thoughts from other you guys or are we ready to wrap it up
2: not this week i'm sure we'll have more later
0: yes there are no final yeah, I mean, thoughts until
1: death we yeah. uh, <laughs> would initiate like 40 40- three more minutes, so.
0: Well, that's good. We need
1: to do more of these
0: podcasts, like I said, so like hold on to that. Take some notes and then hit me up and we'll schedule another thing because we, we're we having really interesting conversations. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what the order of fire is. And uh, I think that a lot of people will be interested to hear these versus the same, like, you know, am I, how many texts, you know, how many days I have to go by before I can text a girl, uh, you know, conversations that most people are having. Uh, we, I think we can have uh, Just know, like, don't. are we allowed to represent gods is a much more interesting one. <laughs> so, yeah. cool. Totally All right, cool. guys. Well, thank you both for joining me. And uh, it, we'll I'll see some of you later, probably. And uh, uh, stay, solar. stay
1: solar. Stay solar. Pater is the cultural arm of the order of fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com.